This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 52, Latitude Zero. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. Just a little update before we start. Regarding the slowdown in episodes this summer, while summer is usually slower anyway because of G-Fest and other events, I've been having more medical complications than usual. When I don't feel good and don't feel myself, I'm not going to do my best work as fast. My health is priority number one, and I'm going in the up direction now. In fact, I'm feeling fantastic, and so let's get into it. In this episode, I will be covering the 1969 film Latitude Zero. I don't know about you, but this movie reminded me of so many other movies that I've seen, all in a good way. A lot of people I talk to love this movie, and you know what? So do I. You'll enjoy the appreciation of this underrated Toho entry. The related topic for this episode is the South China Sea Disputes. As always, check the show notes for the times to skip to if you want to go to part two or part three now. Kaiju Vision is on YouTube as well. Subscribe and see all of the episodes with original videos. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Craig McKenzie is the highly intelligent and resourceful captain of the high-tech submarine Alpha and the founder of Latitude Zero, a secret underwater utopia centered around scientific advancement. The captain and its other inhabitants live very long lives due to the incredible scientific breakthroughs their society has made. Perry Lawton is an incredulous and skeptical reporter for the Transglobe News, who is almost constantly in a state of slack-jawed astonishment. Dr. Ken Tashiro and Dr. Jules Masson are perceptive and logical scientists who understand and admire Latitude Zero. Malik is an evil genius and arch-nemesis of Captain McKenzie, whose goal is to take over Earth. Captain McKenzie has spent most of his life preventing Malik from realizing this goal. Malik has been using his submarine, the Black Shark, to try to eliminate McKenzie. His companion is the equally evil Lucretia, and their base is located on the island of Bloodrock. Both Malik and Lucretia have lived very long lives due to the scientific advancements presumably devised by Malik. Malik, Lucretia, and their followers are the problem. Captain McKenzie launches a rescue operation in order to save Dr. Okada, who was kidnapped by Malik. Malik creates a giant griffin, but it ignores his orders to kill Captain McKenzie. When the rescue team encounters Malik in his operating room, Lucretia is accidentally killed by Malik when Mackenzie pushes her into Malik's scalpel. They rescue Dr. Okada, but Malik escapes through a tunnel. The problem is solved when the Griffin attacks the Black Shark, operated by Malik. As the Griffin attacks the submarine's laser cannon, it unintentionally fires at a cliff, triggering an avalanche that destroys the Black Shark, which kills Malik. A chain reaction explosion then destroys all of Bloodrock. 
The story is simple, with a small group of core characters and some subplot activity. The story is based on the 1941 radio serial of the same name by Ted Sherdeman. Sherdeman wrote the story and the screenplay. Shinichi Sekizawa wrote the Japanese screenplay and acted as a screenplay advisor. Producer Warren Lewis wrote additional dialogue and acted as a creative advisor. The budget for the film was 289 million yen, or approximately 4.1 million present-day dollars. The film was a co-production between Toho and Ambassador Productions, headed by Don Sharp. Latitude Zero was intended to be the first of more Japanese-American co-productions. A higher budget of 5.2 million present-day dollars had been planned for the film, but due to producer Don Sharp, also the head of Don Sharp Enterprises, declaring bankruptcy, the budget was reduced, with Toho picking up nearly all the costs. Director Ishiro Hanu believed that Toho had been tricked by Sharp into funding nearly the entire budget because he declared bankruptcy just after sending the American actors to Japan. Special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya and include back projections, superimposition, animation, matte paintings, composites, and miniatures. The special effects are at times rough around the edges, and there are more murals and matte paintings than usual tokusatsu movies. Akira Ikafube wrote the soundtrack for the film in his typical style. There was significant friction between the Japanese and the Americans on the production staff, especially involving Don Sharp's and Warren Lewis's interference. After a while, they relented and let the Japanese production staff do their work as they had done in previous tokusatsu films. Though the film was shot using CinemaScope, the camera work is lacking, especially when compared to movies done by Jun Fukuda during the same time frame. Executive producer Tomiyuki Tanaka said that Honda did not have a good handle on how to film in CinemaScope. The tone of the movie starts out neither light nor dark, but gets gradually lighter as the story progresses. Additionally, it starts out moderately serious and gets gradually sillier, mostly in the second half. With an underwater utopia, people more than 200 years old, giant rats, Batman, brain transplants, and James Bond-like secret bases, it's a fantasy film. The film is experimental. It made history at Toho because it's the first film Toho made with a script by an American and with a cast of actors all speaking English. Honda used an interpreter to direct the English-speaking actors. Though Toho had done co-productions with American companies earlier in the 1960s, this film was done with heavier collaboration with Americans and was meant to perform well in the American market. The story of Latitude Zero was an odd choice to turn into a movie considering that ideally should have been done in the 1940s or early 1950s. Latitude Zero reinforces the style of 1940s-era undersea adventure serials, as well as Flash Gordon, 1960s science fiction movies and TV shows, and 1960s entries from the James Bond franchise. The result is a different kind of movie, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to create its own unique style. It's more of a throwback to the 1940s, but with a 1960s twist. The film was made primarily to perform well in the U.S. market, importing well-known actors like Joseph Cotton and Cesar Romero and having Japanese actors speaking English should have increased the movie's popularity in the U.S., but the collaboration between Toho and the American producers went so badly that the movie suffered a botched American release. The movie was meant to be entertaining and to appeal to younger viewers, too, with the outlandish story and 1960s aesthetics around the 1940s core story. The film was released on July 26, 1969 in Japan, and did not perform well. The film made 170 million yen, or approximately 2.4 million present-day dollars. 
the original 105-minute international version was cut down to 89 minutes and dubbed for the Japanese version. In 1974, Latitude Zero was re-released in theaters in Japan on a double bill with Mothra. It has a rating of 6.0 on That Movie Database, with only 617 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. The film has a small but devoted following in the tokusatsu fanbase, particularly for its fun and outlandish second half, overall tone, and its imagining of the utopian society of Latitude Zero. The film had a test screening in the U.S. on July 29, 1969, in Dallas, Texas. It was released to general audiences on December 4, 1970, in the United States, and it was distributed by National General Pictures. The original 105-minute international version was cut down to 98 minutes for the American version. It did not perform well in the U.S. at all due to its limited release and mostly negative reception by critics. There are a few forces at play. There is conflict between science for the good of mankind versus science for profit or for war. The scientists living at Latitude Zero are not beholden to any nation or company and can make scientific progress for its own sake. The Cold War has a big effect on scientists because the two powers use them as pawns in order to gain a tactical advantage over each other. Another conflict is between Latitude Zero's futuristic utopian society and the rest of the world that's stuck in the past. Latitude Zero has no money, no power struggles, and its inhabitants live in happiness. Captain McKenzie is right to keep his existence secret and only occasionally leak scientific advancements to the outside world. The theme of the story is that Earth needs to advance beyond its struggles, give up war, and make steps towards progress. Like many stories with utopian societies, the purpose is to show the viewer an optimistic vision of what society should be striving for. The story in particular presents a society that gets rid of power struggles by eliminating money and politics and lets scientists work to better mankind. The result is peace, happiness, and long lifespans. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I first encountered this film a couple of years ago. I was glad to see the recognizable actors, and I loved the general attitude of the movie. Unlike some of the movies covered in season two of Kaiju Vision, this was easy to find and purchase. As I said, I love this movie, and seemingly everyone I talk to who has seen it also does. This movie reminds me of a great many other movies and television shows. I'm not going to hit every one of these that you may be thinking of, but here it goes. First, it reminded me of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which this and many other stories get a jump-off point from. That story itself has a lot of connections to Homer's The Odyssey. The similarities include, but are not limited to, a highly advanced secret submarine that has no national allegiance. In 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it's the Nautilus with a leader who lives in self-imposed exile from society, Captain Nemo. One of the people taken aboard the submarine is more skeptical than the others. In 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it was Ned Land, and in this story, it's Perry Lawton. It's possible that the character in this movie, Dr. Jules Masson, could be a reference to Jules Verne himself. Latitude Zero reminds me of the 1930s and 40s serials, such as Undersea Kingdom, which itself was a response to Flash Gordon. In Undersea Kingdom, a rocket submarine is present, and they discover Atlantis. Latitude Zero is a twist on Atlantis, being a highly advanced, secret, underwater civilization. 
Instead of an evil ruler of Atlantis trying to take over the world, we have a tyrannical ruler of Bloodrock trying to conquer Latitude Zero and the world. Latitude Zero definitely feels like a 1930s, 1940s serial, just attitude-wise. It has a very clear linear plot, and actors act like they're in one of those old serials. The movie is like a 1940s throwback, only with a 1960s package. This whole movie has a retro feel to it. Latitude Zero reminds me of Rocky Jones' Space Ranger, which is from the 1950s. Mystery Science Theater fans may remember Crash of the Moons, which was a TV movie made out of episodes of Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. Lucretia from Latitude Zero totally reminds me of the evil Cleo Lanta from Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. Patricia Medina even acts like Patsy Parsons, who played Cleo Lanta. Cleo Lanta was my favorite character from that serial. She made it fun to watch, and, uh, well, Rocky and Winky certainly did not. Latitude Zero reminds me of Lost Horizon, which was written by James Hilton and turned into a feature film in 1937 and was directed by Frank Capra. It's my favorite Frank Capra movie. I really don't care for his other movies. I'm one of those people who can't stand It's a Wonderful Life. In Lost Horizon, a plane carrying a member of the diplomatic services for the British is hijacked and crash lands in the mountains of Tibet. He is delivered to the land of Shangri-La, a utopian land that has no violence, no war, and is a beautiful, peaceful place. Sound familiar? He later finds out that he was brought there on purpose. Sound familiar? Because of his wisdom and because his writings were read by the ruler of Shangri-La. Being in Shangri-La gives its residents exceptionally long life due to the absence of stress in their lives and the healthy air and nutrients. Sound familiar? The main character's brother, just like Ned Land in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is skeptical and wants to return home very badly. That character can also be connected to Perry Lawton from this movie. Just like in Latitude Zero, some of the characters who enter the Utopia want to stay there instead of returning to the outside world. Of course, there's a lot of overlap between Lost Horizon and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but Lost Horizon is definitely its own unique story, just as Latitude Zero is. Latitude Zero was an adventure story on the radio, and it initially aired in 1941, so this was only four years after the movie Lost Horizon, and only eight years after the novel Lost Horizon was released, so the timing makes sense to have similarities. Any movie that reminds me of Lost Horizon is good, in my opinion. Latitude Zero reminds me of James Bond. If you're going to imitate anything with this story at this time, Bond would be it. The action in the movie reminds me of Bond movies from the 60s, and with the secret bases, fantastical technology, evil henchmen, and, at the end of the day, incompetent supervillains. Linda Haynes, as Dr. Ann Barton, especially looks like she got ripped out of a Bond movie. Latitude Zero also reminded me of Star Trek. The Federation has no money, isn't very political, people are taken care of, and they have no wants and needs unfulfilled, as science enables all of this. But Star Trek isn't the only story like this, either. There are many stories like Latitude Zero. Action-adventure, discovery of utopia, technological accomplishments previously unheard of. These are just some of the examples of other stories that this movie reminded me of. Obviously, there's a huge list of stories that are all like, was it all a dream at the end, and it's really too many for me to mention. Now some info about these actors. Joseph Cotton. I am delighted to see Joseph Cotton in a movie covered on this show. He has such a great voice, too. It's so recognizable and distinct. It's hard to choose which movie I like him in the most, 
but I'd say it's Shadow of a Doubt from 1943, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock said it's his favorite of all the 53 movies he directed. Joseph Cotton plays the villain, and it's a very dark film considering when it was made. The story still has a lot of staying power. Unforgettable movie. Joseph Cotton was also in Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Ambersons, two great films by Orson Welles. He had met Orson Welles in the 30s, and they hit it off really well. A role many people will remember him in would be William Callow from Alfred Hitchcock Presents series in an episode called Breakdown. It's one of the most remembered and recognized episodes of that show ever. It was only the seventh episode in a show that ran 268 episodes. The story involves his character getting in a bad car accident. His car goes off the road, and when he regains consciousness, he's paralyzed, and the people who find him think he's dead, but he's not. It's really gripping. Very original story. Finally, the guys at the mortuary see tears running down from his eyes because he's so desperate and scared, and they realize he's alive. But a lot of the spoken words in that story are him talking to himself. It's his inner voice which Cotton's voice suits very well to that kind of thing. He did two other episodes of Hitchcock Presents, one of which was directed by none other than a young Robert Altman. Joseph Cotton was in many other movies and television shows besides these. Other titles that I've seen him in include Airport 77, Soylent Green, Tora Tora Tora, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Alfred Hitchcock's Under Capricorn, The Third Man, Duel in the Sun, and... Gaslight, starring Ingrid Bergman. Very versatile actor. From 1955 to 1959, he had his own show called On Trial, also known as The Joseph Cotton Show. It was various dramatic scenes of famous trials, mostly historical. It made for some good drama, and quite a few famous actors and actresses of the time played roles in episodes. Next, I'll talk about Cesar Romero. To get the obligatory mention out of the way, he was the first actor to play the Joker in Batman. It's probably his most memorable role. Batman the TV series finished its run in 1968, so with this movie, he had just been coming off of that role. I loved his laugh as the Joker, and I love his laugh in this movie too. Just like Joseph Cotton, Cesar Romero has such a great voice, memorable and unique. He was in the Batman movie in 1966, which I remember seeing when I was just a kid. When I asked my parents what they remembered him from the most, they said they remembered him from the TV show Zorro, where he played the character Esteban de la Cruz. That show ran from 1957 to 1959 and was produced by Walt Disney Productions. He played the Cisco Kid in various lower-tier westerns, too. I remember seeing him in the 1934 film The Thin Man, very well-known film from that classic era of movies. He did a huge amount of television roles, many great appearances. Later in his life, he had a recurring role in the 1980s primetime soap opera Falcon Crest, which ran for nine seasons. He appeared in 51 episodes of that show. The headlining actress in that show was, of course, Jane Wyman, former wife of Ronald Reagan and mother of Michael and Maureen Reagan. She was married to Ronald Reagan during the 1940s. I mention this because Cesar Romero played this character, Peter Stavros, who was a love interest of Jane Wyman's character, Angela Channing. I remember Cesar Romero the most in his roles as villains, like in Latitude Zero, The Thin Man, and in Batman. He had two stars in Hollywood, one for movies on the Walk of Fame, and one for television. I recommend you watch the interviews that he did late in his life that are on YouTube. They're fascinating to watch, and they're linked on Kaiju Vision's social media.
Next, I'll talk about Patricia Medina. Patricia is the second wife of Joseph Cotton. His first wife died in 1960. She is another one with a distinctive voice, deeper voice, seductive. Her father was Spanish and her mother was English. She was a British citizen originally, then became an American citizen later. She's one of the British actresses who went to America during the war. She played damsels in distress and love interests of various types. She played with Joseph Cotton in some plays on Broadway in the 1960s. Her first villain role was in Snow White and the Three Stooges in 1961, and she really wanted to play a villain. She's a great villain in this movie. And like I said, she reminds me of Patsy Parsons as Cleo Lanto. Next, I'll mention some about Akira Takarada, but not too much because the audience for this show knows so much about him and have possibly even met him like I have. He starred in six Godzilla movies. When I met him, he reminded me of a Japanese Cary Grant. His nickname is Mr. Handsome. Six feet tall, dashing man, well-dressed. I was utterly overwhelmed meeting him. Just being in his presence was fantastic. He's been a celebrity for so long. I'll mention some more about him as I talk about this movie itself. I love how he and Akihiko Hirata and other Japanese actors speak English in this movie. I could talk about Hirata a whole bunch too, but you've probably heard other shows go into the Japanese actors much more. Just like Haruo Nakajima, who everyone in the kaiju fandom has heard of. He was a stunt choreographer for this movie, and played the Griffin, and one of the Rats, and one of the Batman. Oh god. I read the Ishiro Honda book by Steve Rifle and Ed Godachevsky a while ago, and I have some remarks regarding what's in the book regarding Latitude Zero. They wrote, It appeared Honda would fulfill his hopes of making a serious science fiction picture with a larger budget. And the sentence continues into the problems with American and Japanese production staff not getting along. And I thought, wait, did Honda not read the part about the rats and the griffin? Or was that stuff added later, maybe? Because this movie isn't really serious a lot of the time. It's a fun sci-fi, fantasy, undersea adventure kind of movie that was written rather comically and is meant to be entertaining. It certainly doesn't fit a description of a serious science fiction picture to me, really, though. On to the next thing in the book regarding Latitude Zero. The passage reads, Jackal, as the skeptical photographer Perry Lawton, gives the most credible performance, while Cotton, Medina, and especially Romero are broad and theatrical. It's like that Family Guy episode, kind of, uh, that episode called Petarded. It's the part where they say, shallow and pedantic. Broad and theatrical. Shallow and pedantic. I think they're relating the credibility of their acting to the outlandishness of the character they're portraying, it seems. Cesar Romero plays the craziest part, therefore he's the most broad and theatrical. And the reporter part is the most grounded role, so therefore he gives the most credible performance? It's kind of odd to tie these two things together. Just because you play an outlandish part doesn't mean you're not as good of an actor or don't give as good of a performance. So because someone plays a wacky part, that makes their performance less credible? I'm puzzled by this passage because I think that Cotton, Romero, and Medina all did a good job and got the fun parts of the movie across. They understood what they were working with. But also, what did they expect out of Cesar Romero in this kind of a role? Like, this isn't supposed to be played like Laurence Olivier and Rebecca. Also, all three of these actors had been acting nearly all of their lives, like since the 1930s. 
and Cesar Romero was in 20th Century Fox's very first movie. They seem to know exactly what they're doing. They don't seem out of their league or out of their element. I think they did exactly what the job called for. In another passage of the book, they say Joseph Cotton said that Ishiro Honda was, quote, charming and artistic, and I'm sure that had he been able to speak English or we Japanese, he would have had some very interesting ideas, unquote. The two authors of the book say this was a tad patronizing. I don't really get that, because who knows what the context was, but, but then again, this book goes after Russ Tamblin a lot, too, and for War of the Gargantuas, and I actually defended Russ Tamblin in that episode. I do get their point that these other Americans like Sharp and Warren Lewis acted like jerks. At least the wardrobe and costume people had fun, right? <laughs> I do really respect Ed and Steve a lot because they've done so much work. Their book is good. I've seen them in panels. They're pretty nice guys. I think most people watch this movie to have a fun time and enjoy it, not to be all serious. Tomiyuki Tanaka understood what I'm talking about, though. And Tomiyuki Tanaka is a huge producer. He said, it was a fun story, but it turned out boring. Honda couldn't get a hold of how to use CinemaScope properly, and the project only showed how difficult it was to make a co-production with another country, unquote. I agree, it is a fun story. The producers probably could have made it more so. The actors were capable of that for sure. It seems like Honda wanted to make a really serious movie, and this just isn't supposed to be that. At least most of the time. When first viewing this movie, it starts out so deadly serious. There's no indication it'll progress to giant rats and putting human brains inside a lion with bird wings on it. The levity from Perry Lawton sort of falls flat at the beginning. He sounds like a 1950s aw shucks kind of guy, not unlike a young Jimmy Stewart. One thing I love about this movie is how the action starts nice and early. The explosion on the ocean surface is very beautiful. It looks like those dyes and other things were thrown into the water, then was turned upside down, and then superimposed onto a shot of the ocean surface. I think this was done very well in The Three Treasures, too, with the volcano. Once Dr. Tashiro and Dr. Massaw and Perry Lawton are aboard the Alpha, in the original story the ship was called the Omega, the tone of the film becomes more fantastical. They've clearly left the world as they know it. I like Linda Haynes as Dr. Ann Barton in this movie. She comes off nice and genuine. Her outfit evokes all kinds of James Bond movies in my head. The scene where Perry Lawton and Dr. Tashiro meet Captain McKenzie is really special. American viewers at the time had to have felt more comfortable with the film seeing a recognizable face. Captain McKenzie says how he and the Alpha are neutral. Perry Lawton is already in full what's that mode, and they see the plaque that reads the Alpha, Launched June 21st, 1805, Stornoway Harbor, Hebrides. Now I'm going to unpack that some more because you'll be interested in what I found. The Hebrides are a group of islands off of Scotland. Stornoway Harbor is in Stornoway, the biggest town in the Hebrides. It's a port town. Currently, its population is around 12,000, so it's not very populated. It's on an island called Lewis. From 1610 until 1844, the island of Lewis was controlled by a family called the Mackenzies of Seaforth. Wow. This family has a long maritime and military history. The head of that family was a lord of Seaforth. Later on, that leader was changed to an earl, and by the late 1700s and early 1800s, the leader was a baron. So it's likely that this is where the name Mackenzie came from, and that's the connection to this story. 
So I thought that Mackenzie was one of the last members of his family. He became very industrious and educated, and he built the Alpha and traveled away from Scotland once it was completed. The most interesting Mackenzie that I found was Alexander Mackenzie. He was an explorer who lived from 1764 to 1820. He crossed from the east to west of North America in 1793, and the Mackenzie River system in Canada is named after him. In 1791, he studied longitude, which is also interesting. So if the Craig Mackenzie character is connected to anyone, it's Alexander Mackenzie. Alexander died in 1820, and this plaque reads 1805, so the dates are right. I never figured that this plaque would actually be a reference to a real explorer or that Ted Sherdeman put much thought into this reference, but there you go. It's also at this time in the movie that the George Friedrich Handel music is played for the first time. The piece of music in this is the orchestral version of Handel's Saraband, which is a movement from the suite for harpsichord number no. 4 in D minor, HWV 437. Handel composed the solo version between 1703 and 1706, and it was published in 1733. It's a very recognizable piece. I heard it, and I thought, God, I really know this. I had to jog my memory because I was overthinking it. I first thought it was Bach or maybe Vivaldi, but then I thought, no, 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 wait, it's Handel. Very good choice of music on behalf of the producers. It fits the moments in the movie very well both times that it's used. It's also a very cinematic piece of music. It's used in other movies, too. It was only after this that I remembered that I actually played the violin part of this entire suite before. It's evoking the past eras of the British Isles, so that fits, too. Of all the music written by Handel, maybe besides the water music, this piece would be recognizable to the audience. Right at the 20-minute mark, the movie really begins, in my opinion. Malik's laugh acclimates us to the villain side of the story right away. I've already talked about these two and their acting credentials, and I don't need to say much here. The Black Shark vessel is great, though. The outfits, especially Captain Kroiga's, are fantastic. I totally dig the outfits in this movie. The more outlandish, the better. Most of the outfits the villains wear remind me of these sort of outfits the characters in the mirror universe of Star Trek Discovery War. I'm mainly talking about Kroiga's. It's a sort of fascist S&M feel to it. <laughs> Kroiga also acts the part, for sure. Cesar Romero's acting puts me in the mood for this kind of a story. It's supposed to be fun, and he's having fun without hamming it up or being obnoxious. Anyone who thinks his acting isn't right on, I have to disagree with you. How is he supposed to act? More serious? Why? And whoever casted him in a role like this should know what to expect in this performance. The dialogue with Corriga saying she'll finally get Mackenzie this time, I promise, is great because you feel as, she's, as if she's said this like a dozen times before this. And this conflict has been going on for so incredibly long, so it makes sense. The script has definitely moved into 1940s serial mode here. The conflict between Kuroiga and Lucretia is also great. Loyalty to Malik is paramount, but after that, the women go at each other and despise each other. Again, not unlike the Star Trek Mirror Universe. These two women are glad when each other fails, and they get a kick out of it. I like how Malik is annoyed by it, too. Then we get the action scene with the Black Shark and the Alpha. It's also reminiscent of a 1940s serial in that the heroes are able to thwart the enemies with new technology that they recently invented that the enemy never sees coming, and then the heroes outsmart rather than outgun the enemy. 
Of course, most of this wasn't actually filmed underwater. It's an illusion that it's underwater. This kind of thing drove the American producers crazy because of their insistence on realism, while these methods are actually just fine and effective. Malik's comments regarding the projected duplicated image are great. Instead of being annoyed or angry, he's like, that's a great idea. How inventive is that? That's amusing. Then Mackenzie fools them with the mirror image blowing up. Finally, in true sci-fi fashion, ramming them is the last option. The Alpha is able to escape to latitude zero, and the technology again saves them from harm. Science is the equalizer. The door's opening when the Alpha enters latitude zero, as well as the docking station reminded me of a James Bond movie. The scene introducing the viewers to latitude zero is really special. It's where the late 1960s sensibilities melds with the sci-fi fantasy element. No politics, because here, people govern their own lives. They don't need to be led by messianic figures that tell them what to do. They're responsibly enjoying themselves and contributing to the public good at the same time. It has people enjoying the utopia, people laughing, also shamelessly embracing their sexual selves too, quite obviously. Hooray for that. I love the outfits on these people the most. The gold and the plastic or whatever it is, maybe vinyl. I wholeheartedly approve. Very futuristic too. Also, the peaceful camaraderie the residents express towards each other. Notice the late 1960s architecture, too, in this city. Forward thinking. Perry Lawton acting all embarrassed by the skimpy outfits is a real beta male behavior, too, making all those faces and stuff. I don't know. The short scene with Dr. Sugata speaking English is most satisfying. Akihiko Hirata sounds good, and I absolutely love the outfit they put him in. That's maybe one of the best outfits. He looks so fantastic. I was so unexpected to see the guy who played Dr. Serizawa from Godzilla wearing that. But it's awesome. Dr. Ann Barton's outfit is wonderful, too. The wardrobe people did a great job creating all these fun outfits. The conversation between Dr. Tashiro and Perry Lawton after that part with the diamonds is pretty funny. Lawton says how they've already gotten you to fall for this paradise, brainwashing, etc. And Dr. Tashiro says, quite frankly, yeah. More like, yeah, and you're so square that you're getting on my nerves. The scene with Malik and Lucretia after that is great because of the noise that the phone makes when it rings. It's like the Showa Gator of phone. It's the bitty, bitty, bitty phone. The scene after that has some nice connections to the Cold War era. These scientists are all part of Latitude Zero projects, or at Latitude Zero already. The communications wall is something Mackenzie took full advantage of. One scientist is rumored to have defected to the Soviet Union, and the Soviets let the West keep on believing that for propaganda purposes, but in actuality, he didn't defect, he went to Latitude Zero. That's just a great example. They run a couple of other stories by us, like the one scientist seeking political asylum in Canada. There's also the aspect of how scientists at Latitude Zero can freely engage in science for its own sake rather than science for profit or for war. The part where Dr. Jules Masson and Dr. Tashiro meet is great too. Tashiro looked happy to see him, but I'm sure I would be if I had to have dinner alone with Perry Lawton last night. Increasingly, a lot of what happens in this movie is action and plot. The MacGuffin that appears in this story is the anti-radiation serum made by Dr. Okada. The scenes with Malak get better and better. The revealing of the Batman really kicks this movie into high gear. The sound they make sounds like Varan. It doesn't sound much different from other Showa kaiju roars, too. 
One of these Batmen is Haru Nakajima. I like the idea that they were previously men that were then turned into these creatures. This film becomes more itself once the professor and his daughter are kidnapped. Thankfully, it gets more entertaining and fun to watch, and these moments are why people are watching this movie in the first place a lot. Malick gets to laugh more, too, and that's just great. People who saw him as the Joker especially had to have liked this. The bath of immunity scene is great. They should have just made an alternate, sexier version instead of, you know, getting Dr. Ann Barton backlit, but oh well, we can't always have what we want. Having her nude would have been fine. The very end of the late 60s saw the Hayes Code finally being lifted so American films could be more realistic. The scene with the men being shot had to have been a little strange for Akira Takarada, quite possibly. He himself had been shot at the end of the Great Pacific War, and he almost died. Plus, his brother had been shot and did die. So I wonder what was going through his head during the shooting, no pun intended, of this scene. It could have just been a split-second thought that went through his mind, at least. When I was planning to re-watch this movie, I thought the stuff with Malik was over the top with the putting the brain into the lion and putting the wings on it and making it grow all huge and everything, but really, this is how the whole movie should have been tonally, instead of being so darn serious at times in the first half. I like the second half way more than the first half. The actors look like they're having a good time. It's around this time in the movie, too, where I wish more lines had been given to Dr. Tashiro and less lines given to Perry Lawton. I know he's the one who's supposed to be constantly and skeptically asking how this and that works, but he gets annoying after a while. There are plenty of action moments in this film, such as the attack with the magnetic force, the avalanche, the rats, etc. This is a lot of 1940s adventure challenges, along with the late 1960s borderline corniness, might be the word. Haru Nakajima was supposedly one of these rats, too. The one person in the theater who says, you can see the zipper on the back of that rat. Feel free to slap them upside the head because you should just be having a good time with these scenes. Malik and Lucretia are having all their fun in this surgical theater of oddities. Malik says this fantastic line and he delivers it perfectly. He says, Kroiga was a fool as a woman. Is she also a fool as a griffin? Why doesn't she attack? That's one of the greatest lines in this movie. The conflict between Mackenzie's group and Malik, where Lucretia is killed, is filmed quite well. The Batman flying also looks cool. Lucretia turning to dust is a nice effect. Clearly she was as old as Malik and Mackenzie. The jetpacks are so 1940s serial, and the gold suits are definitely contemporary. I think I'd rather have the suits the astronauts in Destroy All Monsters wear, but these are good too. The magnets are again used, only this time on the whole ship. The high-tech reply to this attempt is the Alpha ends up like the Atragon. It takes flight and then escapes. The operator of that laser cannon must be a Star Wars stormtrooper because he can't hit the broadside of a barn door. Malik is really bad at it, too. Haru Nakajima is also the Griffin, which is great. It's no wonder that Kroiga as the Griffin decides to take out Malik. She's really mad at him, understandably. So here's a question. Would you stay at Latitude Zero and not go back to the surface? It's the same question I'd ask in Lost Horizon regarding Shangri-La or Oz in The Wizard of Oz. I don't know about Oz, but I'd stay in Shangri-La, and I'd definitely stay at Latitude Zero. It seems like a fabulous place. I'd tell Perry Lawton, so long, nerd, enjoy the surface. Now give me my gold outfit. But that's the case with utopias. Most people I know would enjoy that life and ask no skeptical questions. 
Dr. Tashiro and Dr. Massaw had the right idea. Dr. Massaw having Dr. Barton as a partner is a fantastic outcome. Regarding the scene at the end of the movie, the original ending would have been Lawton showing his photos to military officers, but they're really blurry. Then they believe he's crazy, but then he sees someone who looks like Captain McKenzie, turns the projector back on, and the photos he took are clear. I'm glad they went with the alternate ending of him seeing the characters that are played by the same actors. The handle music is played again when Lawton meets the other McKenzie, which brings us full circle. There's really not much that I can think of in this movie that I didn't like. I wish that the American producer, Don Sharp, hadn't pulled out of this and declared bankruptcy, because I, I think this movie would have done I think this movie would have been better if it had, had more money in it. But that's the case with many of these movies that are discussed on Kaiju Vision Radio. I also find this movie really rewatchable, and I I've watched it like three, four times in preparation for the show. And I it didn't get old. Anyway. That concludes part two. And I'll move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. The topic that I chose is the South China Sea Disputes. In 1969, the year that this movie was made, a United Nations survey team did a study in the South China Sea which determined that there were very significant oil and gas reserves on the ocean floor. And that is what really kicked everything into high gear with the South China Sea conflict. So definitely this issue was going on at the time the film was released and it's still going on now and only getting more intense. It's really messed up in there because it's so all over the place. Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, Brunei, Taiwan, and China all have possession of various places. China is labeled as PLA, or People's Liberation Army. The claims are even more messed up because multiple nations claim some of these geographic features, and nearly all of them here have at least two claimants because China claims all of them. Latitude Zero addresses the Cold War in a few scenes. It's part of the comparison between the real world outside Latitude Zero and the utopia that is Latitude Zero. The world was staring nuclear annihilation in the face in 1969. The peace movement was in full swing, so this is a stark contrast. Fast forward to today, and we are in many ways in just as precarious of a world. Instead of the Soviet Union, it's Russia and China. With the current trade war exacerbating the already tense circumstances with China, I would call the standoff with China a Cold War, though that term really isn't used to describe it a lot. I think it's an apt term, though, because all of these bases that have been built in the South China Sea, the unprecedented claims by China on the entire South China Sea, and how they use their gigantic buildup and modernization of their military to intimidate their neighbors. Some people think a lot has changed in the world compared to when this movie was made. Sure it has, but the overall great power dynamic, is it hasn't changed. The framework hasn't changed. It's still the rules-based international order versus authoritarianism, and containing authoritarianism is still a big strategy. There are still hot spots all around the world, and those places may have changed location, but some haven't. Great power competition has been the normal behavior around the world since at least the mid-19th century. So this world that Captain McKenzie decries hasn't changed very much. 
the reasons he would dislike the outside world haven't changed at all. There are more weapons around the world now than there have ever been, North Korea is worse than ever, and East Asia is an extremely dangerous, intense part of the world. As I said, in 1969 when this movie was released, a United Nations group of researchers discovered oil on the seafloor of the South China Sea. The 1970s and the Vietnam War ending is what made this even worse, because China started taking over parts of the South China Sea when the Vietnam War was about to end. At the time this movie was released, the Vietnam War was still in full swing. Resources play a big role in China's claim on the entire South China Sea, as exclusively theirs. This is what set things off, and that led to where we are now. Military power projection and resource exploration are the two biggest reasons why China has done what it's done. This is bread-and-butter high politics, national and international security. China has built military bases on Fiery Cross Reef, Mischief Reef, and Subi Reef in the Spratly Islands group, and on Woody Island in the Paracel Islands group, which is further north in the South China Sea. These bases were built in the early to mid-20-teens. So what's on these bases? Long runways for fighter and bomber aircraft that are stationed there. These bombers and fighters can reach very far because they are new and sophisticated aircraft. The range included here is anywhere in the Philippines, all of Southeast Asia, and much of Indonesia. There are surface-to-air missiles on these bases that can reach about 75 to 100 miles out in order to attack aircraft. There are anti-ship cruise missiles on these bases. They can use these against any ships that they want to attack. Their range includes most of the South China Sea. There are also radar stations on each of these bases, and barracks for troops, also helipads, and cement plants. So the Chinese are not playing around. They have built these bases on three reefs in the South China Sea. This has done very severe environmental damage to the reefs. It's caused a lot of pollution, too. These are land reclamation activities. Total of 3,200 acres. Two of the three reefs that they have were actually underwater before the land reclamation began. They're essentially creating fake islands by building all of this stuff, and then they're claiming that the whole South China Sea, the entire body of water, is exclusively theirs. Their exclusive economic zone, their sovereign territory, their territorial waters. It's an absolutely huge area we're talking about. These land reclamation projects and bases have also been referred to as unsinkable aircraft carriers. Now I'll talk about where this claim comes from and what the nine-dash line is, because this is what the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, or the PLA, uses to substantiate their claim. There's actually no historical rights to have this principle in the first place, but that hasn't stopped them. The Republic of China, in 1947, published the first version of this concept. The nine dashes stretch from just south of Taiwan, around the west coast of the Philippines, around the north and west sides of the island of Borneo, and curving around the east coast of Vietnam. It's a U-shaped line. When the People's Republic of China won the Chinese Civil War, they adopted and continued this claim. It's a vague claim, and a vague location because it's not exact. China has never told anyone what the connected dashes would look like, and they wouldn't necessarily be the shortest distance between them. In 2013, China added a tenth dash, which isn't even in the South China Sea, it's east of Taiwan. This line is more about China claiming Taiwan as its own national territory. 
it might be connected to the dispute over the Senkaku Islands, which are very close to this new line. It also encroaches more into the territorial waters of the Philippines. The 9- or 10- line encroaches into the territorial waters of all the other countries near the South China Sea, and those nations have all protested China's claim. Those countries are the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, and Indonesia. Indonesia doesn't have any claim on the South China Sea, but they also protested China's claim because it's in their national interest. Speaking of national interest, the United States has considerable national interest in this part of the world, as does Japan and many other countries. This is because $3.37 trillion worth of global trade travels through the South China Sea. This is a huge figure. It amounts to one-third of all global maritime trade. China has a huge stake in this too. 80% of China's imports of energy come through the South China Sea, and almost 40% of the total of China's trade goes through the South China Sea. Control of shipping lanes is what's at stake, along with control of the oil and gas resources in the South China Sea. Another term that goes along with the Nine-Dash Line is a term originally used by the famous commander of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Harry Harris, and that is the Great Wall of Sand. He coined this term in 2015. He was describing the Chinese land reclamation projects in the Spratly Islands and the South China Sea. The idea here is that China has built all of these bases and all of this military power as a way to create a new Chinese border, effectively extending their border and the attack range of their military. The control of shipping lanes is ominous here, because if China controls these shipping lanes and gets to decide who comes through and who doesn't, it would be a huge escalation of disputes and tension in the region. The position of the United States, and over 40 other countries, is that this is not exclusively Chinese territory, and that any shipping, military vessels, or air traffic should have freedom of navigation through the South China Sea. That means any country, any vessel. The implication here is that China could use its military capabilities to lock down the area and prevent anyone they don't like from navigating through the region. There is a huge number of oil tankers going through this region as well, so it's incredibly important strategically. Interestingly, China claims these projects are in order to improve living and working conditions for people on the islands, and that they are for providing shelter, navigational aid, weather forecasts, and fishery assistance two countries passing through. Mm -hmm. Recently, China has considered having all aircraft identify themselves before flying into the region. The United States, Japan, France, and the United Kingdom since 2015 have conducted freedom of navigation exercises with ships and military aircraft in the South China Sea. Australia has flown aircraft over the South China Sea as well. This is because China keeps insisting the entire sea is theirs exclusively, and international law, including the UN Convention on the Law on the Sea, and an international tribunal, have said China's actions aren't legal. So these exercises by the US and other nations are a challenge to China's belligerence, aggression, and bullying in the region. It is a way of saying, no, it's not your decision who gets to be in this area or not. China has stated that eventually they will start firing on and shooting down planes that they don't want around. While this could be a bunch of bluster, it is a very serious thing nonetheless. These actions China has taken are illegal, and international law clearly states exactly that. International law sides with freedom of navigation, 
And that's why the United States, Japan, and other countries that conduct these freedom of navigation exercises say international law is on their side. China has a long track record of ignoring international law, violating trade regulations, and attempting to undermine international institutions of all kinds. So whether it's a U.S. aircraft carrier, a Japanese helicopter carrier, a U.S. spy plane, a U.S. bomber aircraft, a Philippines fishing vessel, an Australian fighter, or a trade vessel from any country, they all have the right to unfettered travel through the region in the South China Sea. Here are some scenarios that could lead to World War III in the South China Sea. First, a military vessel of any country other than China or Russia could get damaged in an attack by Chinese forces trying to drive them away. This could then escalate very quickly into a firefight, followed by casualties and more damage. Second, fighter jets or planes could get into a skirmish while Chinese forces are trying to deter them. There could also be a collision between a Chinese and, say, an American fighter jet, which would then turn into a huge incident. Third, there could be submarines involved, where something like a collision or an attack could occur. These scenarios sound very much like the scenarios depicted in the Toho Tokusatsu movie, The Last War. Check out that episode to learn more about that film. But this isn't the only place in the world that this could happen. It could happen in places like the Black Sea near Crimea, the Baltic Sea, Norway's border with Russia, the East China Sea near the Senkaku Islands, in Syria, or Iran, or even in Venezuela. After thinking so much of this through, it might make you think that Captain Mackenzie had the right idea separating himself from the outside world and building his own society underwater. Lastly, I want to address the court case in the Permanent Court of Arbitration that decided that the nine-dash line is illegal. The case is called Philippines v. China, and is also called the South China Sea Arbitration. The court decided that China has no historical rights or legal basis for the nine-dash line. They decided that the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea doesn't provide for a group of islands such as the Spratleys to generate maritime zones collectively as a unit. Additionally, they decided China had breached its obligations under the Convention on the International Regulations Preventing Collisions at Sea and Article 14 of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea Concerning Maritime Safety. They also decided that China violated its obligations to refrain from aggravating or extending the party's disputes during the pending settlement process. In other words, while the court was deciding the legality of what China was doing, China ignored it and continued making it worse, which that was them continuing to build these bases. The court decided in the Philippines' favor for all seven of the 15 submissions that the court ruled on within their jurisdiction. When this court case began, China said they weren't going to participate. China didn't appoint any agents or representatives to act on their behalf during the case. This is another instance of China attempting to undermine international norms and institutions. But the thing is, China ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1996, so they're bound to respect the decisions of the tribunal. The Convention on the Law of the Sea is effectively a worldwide constitution for the oceans. The Philippines asked the court to make determinations for the case on the convention and not on historic rights. This is to be expected because both the Philippines and China ratified the convention. The thing to remember here is that the claims China is making here aren't based legally on the convention at all, and these claims are excessive. And the tribunal agreed. Getting into the details some more, 
What China is claiming here is that all these artificial islands, reefs, and rocks are actually their own continental shelf and their own exclusive economic zones. But the thing is, these are just rocks, and some of them are below water at high tide, also called low tide elevations. And these places cannot sustain human habitation or economic life. Therefore, they don't qualify under the convention as a continental shelf or as an exclusive economic zone. It's just China saying that we built artificial islands, so therefore these places are just like the mainland, or a real island. The court said these are fake islands, essentially. Though they are above water at high tide, that's not the qualification for an exclusive economic zone or a continental shelf or a maritime zone really of its own. Regarding fishing, China has gotten into it with Philippines repeatedly. China created its own moratorium on fishing in the South China Sea. This includes areas that are inside the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines. So China breached an article of the convention by preventing fishing by the Philippines in their own exclusive economic zone. These actions were unlawful because these were areas of the Philippines that had historically conducted fishing activities in. I can see why the Philippines wouldn't like this, because it's none of China's business. Moving into environmental damage, it's difficult to tell just how bad China's damage is, but we know it's bad. China hasn't allowed any unbiased teams near their fake islands to conduct inspections. However, the court was able to decide that China has done significant damage to the environment with their developments on these seven different reefs in the Spratly Islands. Chinese fishermen have been allowed to harvest endangered species at various locations in the South China Sea, which is illegal according to the convention. The island-building activities have damaged coral and killed fish and polluted the water and damaged or destroyed animal habitats and migration paths. China has also created significant risks of collision and other danger to Philippine vessels and personnel due to China's aggressive actions against fishermen. The court decided in the Philippines' favor for every issue they took up. Though it wasn't in the court case, China has used threats of military action to prevent Vietnamese oil extraction in the South China Sea. This falls under resource hoarding and efforts to prevent anyone else getting oil and gas extraction abilities. China has rejected the findings of the tribunal. At every point during arbitration, China had the opportunity to join the proceedings and send representatives to the court to make their case. China says they can legally disregard the tribunal's decision, but again, they have no legal basis for that. China has stated that they prefer bilateral negotiations to resolve disputes instead of the tribunal route, but at no point has China actually solved much with this route either. We'll solve it bilaterally with each individual country is more like we'll do whatever we want and ignore the protests of all these other countries. And that's the common thread here. China acts aggressively in the region and does whatever they want. Their threats are getting increasingly alarming. If they attack planes or any military vessels traveling through the South China Sea, they risk a huge incident. But these freedom of navigation exercises and flyovers are not meant to provoke anything. No one's firing any weapons, no one's dropping any bombs. They're fully within their right to travel through international waters, completely legally and in accordance with the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and the decision of the Tribunal, which was released in 2016. Japan, for its part, has given strategic aid to the Philippines and Vietnam and firmly support the rule of law as well. They've participated in some of the freedom of navigation exercises alongside the U.S., as has France and the U.K., 
This is what's called innocent passage. There is no threat of the use of force, no military exercises, no practices with weapons, no surveillance operations, no propagandizing, no launching or landing of any aircraft on aircraft carriers, no loading or unloading of illegal commodities or currencies or people, no polluting, no fishing, no research survey activities, and no interfering with communications. So it's literally United States ships and whatever other country's ships, like a Japanese helicopter carrier, for instance, traveling through the South China Sea and leaving. So innocent passage involves no provocation, and the definition of innocent passage is defined in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. These passages are unannounced and at random times, and they have the legal right to do that too. Since the territorial claim by China is illegal, there is no legal requirement to give advance notice or to ask for approval. What's funny is, though the United States didn't formally ratify the convention, we consider it customary international law and actually follow it. But China ratified it, and they turn around and ignore it whenever they want. All in all, I'm pretty concerned that this conflict will get worse. There are no longer joint military exercises between the U.S. and China. There is very little communication between the PLA and the U.S. military and it seems a small incident could ignite something big if both sides aren't careful. I don't believe this issue or the Senkaku Islands issue get enough press attention or public attention in the United States. I'm doing my part to increase awareness of this issue, because it's one of the most dangerous places on Earth. At Kaiju Vision, I stand with the United States and its allies, and with the enforcement of the decision reached by the tribunal, which is in accordance with international law. I absolutely hope that the tension can be reduced in the region through dialogue between China and other littoral nations in the South China Sea and with the international community. Lawful freedom of navigation should be respected and uninhibited, and there should be no acts of military intimidation or threats of military action. I hope this research gives you some valuable information. You've probably seen posts on KaijuVision's social media about these efforts to go through the South China Sea with military vessels and all of these other exercises. It is because this issue, especially since the building of these bases in the South China Sea, has gotten much more tense. Lastly, I'll give you some economic figures of note. GDP for Japan in the year 1969 was 12.7%. It is one of the highest GDP figures in the entire history of Japan. This episode is dedicated to Joseph Cotton, Cesar Romero, Patricia Medina, and Richard Jackal. Thank you to the American actors in this film for giving us your performances in this incredible and fun and unique movie. All of the actors in this movie made Toho history, and I'm very proud of all of them. The next episode of this podcast will be 1970's Space Amoeba. The film stars Akira Kubo. 1970 is when the contract actor system finally ended in the Japanese studio system, and it completely overturned so many things. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what's going on in the show, and you get to message me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please check out Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.